Mark chapter 9 is where I'd like us to go tonight. And I would, uh, I'm going to begin by reading the entire text, and I would encourage you to keep your Bible open uh, because we will continue to look at it. But uh, I would like to read the entirety of this. My text tonight is uh, Mark 9, 14 to 29. Mark 9, 14, And when he, Jesus, came to his disciples, he saw a great multitude about them and the scribes questioning with them. And straightway all the people, when they beheld him, were greatly amazed and running to him, saluted him. And he asked the scribes, What question ye with them? And one of the multitude answered and said, Master, I have brought unto thee my son, which hath a dumb spirit. And wheresoever he taketh him, he teareth him, and he foameth, and gnasheth with his teeth, and pineth away. And I, I spake to thy disciples that they should cast him out, and they could not. He answereth him, and saith, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him to me. And they brought him unto him. And when he saw him, straightway the spirit tear him, and he fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming. And he asked his father, How long is it ago since this came unto him? And he said, Of a child, and oft times it hath cast him into the fire and into the waters to destroy him. But if thou canst do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said unto him, If thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. And straightway the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. When Jesus saw that the people came Running together, he rebuked the foul spirit, saying unto him, Thou dumb and deaf spirit, I charge thee, come out of him and enter no more into him. And the spirit cried and rent him sore and came out of him. And he was as one dead, insomuch that many said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he was coming to the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could not we cast him out? And he said unto them, This kind can come forth by nothing but by prayer and fasting. There's a lot there, isn't there? The more you encounter Jesus, the more you come to realize how desperately you need him. Our Lord Jesus made us a promise in Matthew 16, a glorious promise. Verse 18, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. We believe that, we take that, and I stand before men and women, young people, boys and girls from churches, local churches all over the United States. And so we can say, without hesitation, the Lord Jesus is building His church in Texas. 
He is building his church in Illinois. He's building his church in Louisiana. He is building his church in uh, Michigan. He's building his church in Nevada, where I come from, and whatever state you may come from, and forgive me for not mentioning it. But the Lord Jesus is building his church. Therefore, we expect success because uh, he builds the church through disciple making as we have been talking about and as we have been learning and as we have been reminded of. And as we make disciples who make disciples, he is building his church. This is how you build a church. It's how he does it. Therefore, we expect success. We anticipate more churches. We anticipate healthy churches. We anticipate true churches. But we also anticipate hated churches, resisted churches. Because what's the other part of the promise? I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Uh, we do realize that those uh, that the gates are defense mechanisms, and so hell will not prevail against the advancement and the building of the church. Therefore, disciple-making works, even though hell resists it, but hell loses. So we, as God's people, hold fast to this promise of our Lord Jesus. We engage in the work. We draw up our philosophy. We strategize. We map. We conference together. We encourage. We preach. We disciple. We budget. We serve. We love. We are faithfully present in the communities that God has called us to. And every one of these and so many more are important and vital and necessary to the work, the building, and the advancement of the church. But we are fools if we are not on our faces before God pleading for His intervention and His power to be unleashed. For what else did our Lord say in John 15, 5? Without me, you can do nothing. Your church, my church, our churches, our local churches, and the church of Jesus Christ across this nation and the world will only advance on our knees in prayer, confessing our weakness and need of Him. For what do we learn in our encounter with the Lord Jesus here tonight? Jesus responds to radical dependence on Him. I'll say that again. The Lord Jesus responds to radical dependence on Him. So here is the format for us tonight. I'd like us, I've read the encounter, I'd like to walk through the encounter with you, and we're going to look at three unforgettable moments that occur in this incredible encounter. After we are done looking at the, uh, these, these three moments, then I will do my part to suggest some applications for us. Um, all right, so that's where we are headed. Here are the three unforgettable moments. I'll, I'll tell you them here at the beginning so you know um, how we are progressing as we go. We're going to see, first off, that Jesus interacts with a hurting father. 
which then is going to lead to a second moment from the Lord Jesus in which he commands the demon to depart. And then we will end with the third moment is when Jesus instructs his powerless disciples. And it's at that point that we will dive down a little bit more into some application. So there you go. Let's jump into this. Number one, Jesus interacts with a hurting father. Immediately prior to this encounter, where is Jesus? He is on top of the mountain being transfigured. If you were in the first session this morning, Pastor Cripp says, let's look at the transfiguration. And I again about passed out. (laughs) There is Jesus on the mountaintop. He is being transfigured. The glory that is within him comes bursting out and shining forth. He is transfigured before Peter, James, and John, Elijah, and Moses. What a preview of heaven. And there, the three of them honor him. The two uh, from heaven honor him. And then even his own father speaks out of heaven and honors him. Here is Jesus in the place of glory. Jesus in the place of honor. How much easier would it have been for him, do you imagine, to stay in the place of glory? But he doesn't do that. He comes down to the valley of brokenness. What a description of your community, isn't it? He knows that there, are, there is a hurting family he needs to love. There are taunting scribes he needs to silence. And there are failing and confused disciples he needs to rescue, instruct, and recommission. But is that not always been the mission of Jesus? Leave the place of glory to bring living hope to those in the valley of brokenness and sin. That's what he left heaven for. So behold the brokenness in the valley. A boy has a big problem. The symptoms point to epilepsy, seizures, convulsions, rigidity, grinding of the teeth, foaming at the mouth. But this is no ordinary epilepsy, for Mark tells us a demon had deprived this boy of his ability to hear and even speak. And The viciousness of the demon had often thrown him into the water to drown him or into fire to destroy him. And the father is at the end of his rope. We don't know how many other remedies he may have tried, but we can imagine that he has tried so many other things. And he has this idea. In fact, he even tells us, he tells the Lord Jesus, I have brought my boy to you. What that reminds me of is what our question is tonight. Will the light penetrate the darkness? He is in a very dark place. His boy is in a darker place. And he has this mentality, he has this thought, if I can just get my boy to Jesus, then maybe something will happen. Maybe the light will penetrate the darkness. Could it be, as so many people had already heard about Jesus, so he had some recollection or some knowledge of who Jesus is, what Jesus has done for others? Perhaps he will do this for me and my family. If I can just get my boy to Jesus, all will be well. 
And that is the message that we bring to a hurting world. He said, well, that's wonderful. Well, what's the problem? The problem is when we open up this encounter, he can't locate Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is on the mountain. So he does the, the only logical thing. He goes and brings the problem to the representatives of Jesus, the nine remaining disciples at the foot of the mountain, that they might cast out the demon, that they might have some uh, ability to fix the problem. But what do we find out? The nine disciples fail this family. In fact, some of the saddest words of this encounter are found in verse 18, the testimony of the Father, they could not do it. Now you can say, Andy, it makes sense, they're just human beings like you and me. That's right. But you need to understand, in Mark 3, Jesus had authorized and given power to these very disciples to exorcise demons in His name. And in Mark chapter 6, these very disciples had already cast out demons. But here in Mark 9, they don't. They fail the family, they fail themselves, and most tragically, they fail the Lord Jesus, and they bring, as we are going to see, doubt about Jesus because they have no power. Now, let me just say something real briefly. I know that we are not the nine disciples, but we are the followers of the Lord Jesus. And I see in this encounter it, 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 a, a, a picture, maybe I could put it this way, how like the church in America today. Now, I'm going to talk about it writ large. I cannot tell you how encouraged I have been from the testimonies and the conversations and the stories of people being saved and discipled and, and growing in the Lord in our churches. Praise God for that. But when you think of the church in America as a whole, this reminds me of Christians in America. How many are like this family they know they have brokenness they cannot fix. They have broken lives, broken minds, broken relationship to God, broken past, a broken future. They've tried everything. They cannot figure out how to fix their problems. And something in the back of their mind says, well, maybe I should try God. Maybe, just maybe, He can do something. But here's the problem. They can't find God. They don't know how to get to Him. So they do the only logical thing. They turn to the representatives of God, the church. They might even come into a church service. They have no idea about denominations. They're as confused about denominations as Christians are. <laughs> and they come in or they, they interact and they're looking for help for their brokenness. They're looking, they don't even maybe even realize it's their sin, but they, they're, they're looking for help from their sin. They have turned to Christians, but the church in America, largely, we are failing these people. They come into church, and what do we offer them? Shallow and meaningless songs. We offer them stale Christian cliches that we heard when we were little kids. 
We offer them social events or self-help sermons that are full of behavior modification, full of political activism, and full of maybe even the prosperity gospel. And I don't mean that we don't care as God's people in the world. We do care, but we have no answers for the brokenness and the sin around us. We speak with no authority in their lives because the the quiet part that we are scared to say out loud is this, we're not even sure, so sure about this God we say we believe ourselves. And no wonder the church in America is silent. Those who are hurting in sin, they have no reason to listen to us. And oh, how the anti-Jesus scribes howl at us. Liars, phonies, so is your master. And our lack of answers and our lack of power in this sin-damaged world discredits the church, but most tragically, it drags the name of Jesus down. So what is the response of Jesus when he hears that his disciples have not done what he has called them to do? He says to the man and then really to the the, the crowd at large, oh, faithless generation. And, And I find encouragement on one end, and that is he does not so much bemoan their lack of power as their lack of faith. And he says, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? I think in his humanity, the the, the spiritual dullness of mankind and those who should know better weighs heavily upon him. Maybe even, uh, this is conjecture, but maybe even in his mind, he thinks about his own disciples. I was gone for just a few hours and everything fell apart. What's going to happen when I'm not physically here? Bring the boy to me. So the boy is brought to Jesus. The poor child violently convulses. The demon is not happy. What's Jesus doing? Watch this. He is inserting himself in the situation, and he is about to exert his power. He is doing exactly what the father wanted and needed. Here's the moment. And yet, the attitude of the father towards Jesus has changed. Earlier, if I could just get my boy to Jesus, things will be different. And now that Jesus is here, what does he say? If you can do anything, have compassion and help us. He's he's beginning to waffle a little bit. In fact, he'll even say, I believe, but help my unbelief. what, What happened? What changed about his attitude. Has Jesus changed? No. Has his problem changed? No. Why is he now wavering? There's only one answer that I can see. His faith is now wavering in Jesus because he has witnessed that Christ's followers had no power and no answer. Now he doubts Jesus. He doubts God. And Jesus responds with great grace. (laughs) All things are possible to those who believe in me. Believe in me again. 
He responds to radical dependence on him. The question is not whether he is capable. The question is, do you believe he is capable? Faith in Jesus accesses the power of Jesus. And then the Father says those words that you and I, if we have not actually quoted in our prayers, they, we have dealt with it so many times. I do believe, but boy, I'm not believing. Help my unbelief. He says to Jesus, in effect, I cast my all on you. There is no going back. I risk everything on you. I'm jumping, Lord, catch me. Lord, deliver my son from this demon and deliver my soul from doubt. So rejoice in this, in that Jesus is never limited by our imperfect faith. Now, unbelief shuts down his work. But faith, even with doubts, releases his power. Faith in him. Jesus responds to radical dependence on him. He waits for faith. So Jesus interacts with a hurting father. That's the first really unforgettable moment. But maybe even topping that one is the second moment. And that is when Jesus commands the demon to depart. Did you notice the authority of heaven? Jesus says two things, come out and never return. This is immediate relief and permanent relief. The demon doesn't like it, so what does the demon do? It tears into the boy one final time. Have you discovered this? That when Jesus begins to work in a heart, evil kicks up a fight. But evil cannot win. And as you give your life to Christ, or as you are discipling someone or seeking to win someone to Christ, be ready for the chaos of evil. But evil will bow to the Lord Jesus. And I've got to believe that the Holy Spirit has begun a work. He's not going to stop it. So stay the course. I love this, the chaos of evil, but the calm of Jesus. He picks up the boy and everyone marvels. He commands the demon to depart. That was point number two. Is that not the quickest point you've ever heard in your life? Now, hold on. Number three goes on for a while. The third unforgettable moment, Jesus instructs his powerless disciples. So privately, the nine ask Jesus this question in verse 28. Why could we not cast it out? They've had success, but not this time. Why did we have no power? Why did we fail? Why did we have no answer? And it bothers them that they lack power. Does it bother you? And I contend the question that these nine ask is the question the church must ask herself at the present time. Now, as again, as you think about the church in America, even, and I would, let's, let's just really focus more on those who are preaching the gospel. Is it not obvious to you that the church in America 
faltering, diminishing? Where are the conversions? Where are the baptisms? Where are the church plants? Where is the vitality? Where is the revival? Where is the faith? Where is the disciple-making? Where is the anointing, the sacred anointing in the pulpit? Where is the next generation? I'm not a prophet of doom. I'm a preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which means good news. But does it bother you as it did the nine that the churches are floundering? We believe light penetrates the darkness. We know light penetrates the darkness. We have seen light penetrate the darkness, but why does it seem like it doesn't happen all that often? I used to travel a lot more than I do now. God has moved my heart to church planting in, in a city. I still get to go around like here and other places every so often. But I've learned in my various travels that the number one question that pastors ask me and it's not even close. It's some variation of this. Andy, in your travels, what are other churches doing well? Now, that's a great question. And I, and I, I like conferences like this because we can get ministry, we can, we can improve in our ministry methods, and we can all benefit from good ideas. What are other churches doing successfully to reach people, to make disciples, and so forth? That is a great question, and I don't think there's any problem with asking it, but I want you to consider the 21st century church is better equipped, higher instructed, and greater financed than any other generation of the church, yet we have more complacency, greater worldliness, lower expectations, fewer conversions, flatter congregations, and deeper sin. We love to dwell on the high mountain of doctrinal precision but we have no answers for a convulsing multitude in the valley. And I'm all for asking about what are other churches doing well. But maybe, just maybe, our problem is we're not asking the question of the nine. Why could we not cast it out? Why do we have no power? Why are we receding? Why are we failing? What? is wrong with us. Now, that's a great question, but here's an even greater statement, or greater idea. Jesus tells us what's wrong. <laughs> and he's going to give us, he gave them, three little reasons why we could not cast it out. And from his answer, I want to give some applications. Now, I'm going to give you the three little reasons why, and we're going to spend the bulk of our time on the first one. So when we get to number two, I don't want you to go, oh my goodness, when is he going to be done? Number two and number three are going to go quicker than number one. So you're welcome. But number one will take a while. <laughs> Maybe. Okay. Why did the nine disciples fail? Why do I believe we are failing according to Jesus? Three little reasons why. Number one, because of their little understanding. Their little understanding. 
Look at Jesus' answer in verse 29. He said unto them, This kind can come forth by nothing but by prayer and fasting. What words catch your attention when you read Jesus' answer in verse 29? I'll tell you what catches my attention. Nothing, prayer, fasting. I was reading a sermon by Martin Lloyd-Jones, preacher in England in the mid-20th century. And in that message, he pointed out a different word I had never seen before, or two words, this kind. Think about that. This kind can come forth. You say, I don't understand. Well, let me supply my own two words next to it, and I think that'll give you the sense. What Jesus is saying is, this kind of demon can come forth by nothing but by prayer and fasting. This kind of evil. In other words, there are different kinds of demons. Different kinds of evil. Here Jesus exposes and reveals to the disciples the entrenched power of evil in this boy's life. The nine had cast out demons before, but this kind of demon they had never encountered. Ephesians 6 tells us that there are levels of demons all under Satan's leadership. Principalities, powers, rulers of the darkness of this world. And here the nine came up against a higher level of evil. And their previous methods were not enough. Now, the ultimate problem is always the same. The sin of our heart and the slavery, uh, uh, Satan's influence and sin's slavery in our lives. Yet I am going to argue tonight that the church today fails to understand that there are kinds of evil we are up against. Levels of strength. Can I put it this way? The 21st century church is facing a 21st century evil. In many ways, an order of strength gripping the population that did not grip our nation just 150 years ago. The evil has always been here since the fall. But it has taken hold of the masses and the minds of people all around us. This kind of evil. So, here's where we're going to venture a little bit more into Andy's meditation. What kinds of evil are we up against in our world today? I would like to give you an overview of what I have determined is the kind of evil we are up against. There are seven of them, and it is an overview. Now, I'll have them start with the letter D. Maybe that'll help you as we go along. I don't believe that we understand the kind of evil we're up against. So number one, what, what, what kind of evil do we face? Number one, a disbelief in God. Today in America, there is no belief in God. Science, or what passes for science, is God. You stream television or movies on your devices, there is no God on them except to mock Him. There is no God in Congress. He has been banished from the public square. We cannot speak of God in our schools and in our universities. 
No Bible is tolerated, no Ten Commandments, no Creator. If you must have a God, then fashion him or her according to your own whims and desires or the ever-changing winds of the political culture. And consequently, because God has been removed from polite and public conversation, our youth are growing up in this country with no knowledge of God. I shared this with someone, I forgive, forgive me uh, who I shared this with, but I, I, I will say it again. Two weeks ago, I was driving through um, a, a coffee place to get a coffee for my wife. It was earlier in the morning, and I ordered, and I was in the drive-thru, and uh, a young lady, tw early 20s, is standing there, and as we're waiting for the coffee to come, uh, she was very chatty, very friendly, and she said, so you got any big plans today? And I said, well, I'm going to the library. And she said, oh, why are you going to the library? And I said, well, you see, I'm a pastor, and I'm studying for uh, Sunday. And she said, okay, what is a pastor? Well, that was an easy question to answer. But I thought, Really? Growing up in America and you have no idea even of what a pastor is. Now, my next question to her was, now, do you understand what a, what a, what a church is? <clears throat> yes. I said, okay, well, we'll start there. Let's, let's talk through that. It's my privilege to preach in various summer camps during the, the uh, youth camps and so forth during the summers. And I am surprised every summer by the teenagers who are coming from our types of churches with their ignorance of God, the most basic understanding of God. And my heart breaks. And they're coming from our churches, much less those who don't go to any church. Right and wrong is not based on God's character, but on our ever-changing mood of our own moral compass. This kind of evil that we are facing begins with a disbelief in God. Number two, we are facing a disrespect of the Bible. Because there is no God, there is no truth. Now, once upon a time in America, people respected this book. I don't mean that they believed it or they wanted it, but at least there was some measure of respect for the Word of God. But today, the book you and I are looking at and hold so dear carries no authority in our culture. You try to bring the Bible into any conversation in America, and you are often immediately dismissed. That is an anti-intellect book. It is, you are closed-minded. It hinders progress. It's homophobic. It's misogynistic. Have we grasped this kind of evil? And sometimes we wonder, why, why, don't, why don't people go to church? This is why. This is an ancient book that doesn't mean anything in our culture. So what do we do? Do we stop preaching? Absolutely not. The preaching of the cross is to them who are perishing the power of God. Our foolishness, but to us who are saved, it is the power of God. 
But we do face a level of, un, of evil unknown in the history of America. Number three, we face a denial of Christ. It follows if there is no God, then Jesus is just a man. Everyone seems to love the historical Jesus, but God is out. Even the so-called banned books from the Bible, we are told they present the real Jesus, the authentic Jesus. The church wants to silence this. The church doesn't want this to get known. But, oh, if you join our ranks, then you'll be a part of the group that knows. Even in his lifetime, Jesus was called an illegitimate child of immorality. He can be carpenter, he can be martyr, he can be teacher, he can be prophet, he can be anything but God. In fact, we're told Jesus never claimed to be God. Only deluded people believe in the resurrection. Catholic doctrine elevates Mary to the level of Jesus, making her a co-redemptrix, which denies Jesus his exclusivity. Mormons demote Jesus. Oh, he's a son of God, but not the eternal son of God. Evangelical polls show increasing number of so-called Christians do not believe Jesus is God. To that I say they are not Christian. Pop culture presents Jesus as a naive, effeminate, religious hipster. Secularists promote Jesus as a loving humanitarian fighting for their select brand of social justice. Everyone loves Jesus, but few will bow to him as Lord and God. We face an onslaught of evil against our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Why aren't we making any headway? This kind of evil. Number four, a discrediting of the church. How many more influential former professors of Christianity are going to deny the faith to their millions of YouTube followers? How many more high-profile Christians will spectacularly fall in egregious sin? How many more racist, unloving, immoral acts are going to be made in the name of God? How much more will we con continue to confuse the gospel with politics? How many more sermons will be preached to justify worldly thinking and behavior? There was a time in America, and it wasn't that long ago, when the leading voices of righteousness were actually pastors. Not anymore. The state is the leading voice for what is righteousness. And we face a shocking level of evil when government determines what is right and wrong. They overstep their bounds. Because we have abdicated our responsibility. Number five, a delight in immorality. There is no such category called immorality, unfortunately. Every man does that which is right in his own eyes. If science is not God in America, then sexual immorality is. It is flaunted, celebrated, paraded, protected. Can't help who you love, right? When even on Sunday, the President of these United States 
declares a man pretending to be a girl a moral good. To call the act of homosexuality a sin, as the Bible does, will get you hated and labeled and canceled. To say that there are only two genders, as the Bible does, and the venom will rain upon you. Pornography is accessible on every device. Adultery, bestiality, this kind of evil. Number six, a dependence on substance abuse. Alcoholism, drug addiction, needles, mind-altering narcotics, pills, over-the-counter meds, fentanyl, lacing it all leading to cutting, self-harm, depression, despair, suicidal thoughts or actions. Why won't people come to church? This kind of evil. Which leads to number seven, a descent, a descent into the demonic world. There is a darkness over this land. You know it. I know it. And yet... We keep going back to some previous methods, some old methods that are good, but to rid and dislodge this kind of evil, it's not working. And yet we keep going back to the same pump. Again, this is just Andy's thoughts. Take them or leave them. We in the church sometimes put so much belief, faith in media. If we could just have better quality social media, slicker movies and TV shows. If we could just had a, have a more online presence, then we can make a difference. We put faith in apologetics. If we could just make Jesus more logically appealing. Now, I believe in apologetics. I believe in good media. And I believe there are reasons for Christianity, and I believe you can present them and should present them, but you cannot reason a dead man to life. We put our faith in music. If we could just make our music more appealing, more modern, more ancient, or anywhere in between, <laughs> then we'll see change. Belief in celebrity evangelicals, athletes, politicians, even celebrity preachers, God help us. How about we put our faith in legislation, acts of Congress? If just the Supreme Court of the United States could make more rulings on Christian ethics, then we're going to see something happen. Well, just this summer, pretty big ruling was overturned. Where's the revival? And yet that's where our faith is in. We put our belief in church philosophy. If we could just do church better. Now, as a fledgling church planter, my head has been in church philosophy for what seems like half a decade. I believe in this. 
But doing church better isn't going to make a difference for this kind of evil. Or we put our belief in civility. If we could just be kinder, more tolerant, more accepting. Now, all of these things are important, should be thought through very carefully and implemented in the church as God leads. But to argue that any of these are essential to dislodge evil in our modern world betrays our utter lack of knowledge of what we're actually up against. We need something stronger than these methods. Why could we not cast it out? Because of your little understanding. Number two, because of your little faith. And that's really the whole point. Now, Jesus doesn't say that here in verse 20, uh, here in Mark, but he actually says that in Matthew 17. They ask him, why could we not cast it out? And he says, because of your unbelief. The nine approached this kind of demon with their tried and true formula. I mean, after all, they have ministry experience. Not their first rodeo with a demon. They have not only ministry experience, they have ministry association. They're the Jesus followers. They have their ministry methods. They do the work, results follow. They have been to all the seminars. There's no need for faith. But experience and association and methods are not enough to root the evil entrenched in people's lives in the valley of brokenness. What is needed is dependent, desperate faith in Jesus. And as we learn in that Matthew 17, he says, because of your doubt or because of your unbelief, your little faith, he then goes on to give the illustration of the grain of mustard seed. Even a small amount of faith in God is sufficient to dislodge the evil. My goodness. So when it comes to your church, where is your faith placed? You or Him? Why could we not cast it out? Well, because of your little understanding, you didn't know what you're up against. Because of your little faith, your faith was in you. And number three, back here in Mark 9, because of your little prayer. This kind can come forth by nothing but by prayer and fasting. Adding fasting to prayer indicates the desperate nature of this prayer, the radical dependence on God. How do you show you are radically dependent on Him? By praying to Him. This is not a casual prayer, but repeated, serious, committed prayers in faith. We might say, well, we have this evil we're up against, so let's redouble our efforts. Let's teach more. I'm all for teaching and preaching. But Jesus says, you haven't been praying for this. I have a lot of, a lot of friends, a lot of pastor friends. It's the world in which I live largely. And a, a pastor friend of mine called me 
and uh, just wanted to find out how things were going in Reno. We had a good talk. We know each other quite well, really good friends. <laughs> and at one point in the conversation, he said, Hey, Andy, have you heard what God's been doing in, and he mentioned another church that we both knew. And I said, No, tell me about it. He said, Can you believe it? In the, he said, I talked to that pastor just the other day, and he said, In the last two months, they have seen 30 people baptized, saved and baptized added to the church. And he said, my heart was so full. And I said, that is awesome. That's incredible. He said, I know. He said, but then, you know, I, I rejoiced with him, and then I hung up the phone, and all I could think of was, God, what are we doing wrong? Now, I immediately tried to cut him off and encourage him and say, well, brother, look, he is in a larger percentage of a population than when you are. Numbers are not what we're looking at here. It's God honors faithfulness, and you are doing exactly what God's called. Well, I was trying to say that, but he does know me real well, and he cut me off. <laughs> and he said, Andy, I know what you're trying to say, and I'm not discounting being faithful. And he said, I know that we are being faithful, but I'm not satisfied with the status quo. And he said, Andy, all I can come up with is this. What are we doing wrong? He said, the only thing I can come up with is we've got to be on our faces before God. Now, that's nothing new, is it? I'm afraid we have resigned ourselves, largely, to things as they are. And of course, disciple-making is hard. Nobody said it wasn't. But I want you to ask yourself this question. Is this all? Are you content? Are the greatest days of your church all behind you? This kind of entrenched evil can only be overcome by that kind of dependent prayer. I realize that every one of us could say, I've got to be a better in prayer. And yes, you do, and so do I. But maybe tonight God has specifically spoken in a way to you that says, I've got to recommit. Maybe you and your spouse, maybe you and some folks in your church. Maybe you want a covenant together before God tonight. Repent of our prayerlessness, our dependence on ourselves. And a recommitment to him and praying for him. I don't know how God has spoken. Maybe you find yourself as that father or the boy. You just need to come to Jesus tonight and say, God, be merciful to me. I cannot dislodge the sin in my own heart. I need you to save me. Do for me what I obviously cannot do for myself. And he will save you. And if you'd like to talk with someone... Uh, from the Bible about salvation in Christ, there are multitudes of people who would love to sit down with you and help you in that. But as we conclude, if the Lord would desire to, if you need to do any business with God, I encourage you to do so. Let me pray. Father, in Jesus' name, give us grace to hear this message, to believe you, and to follow accordingly. Thank you, Lord. Amen.